What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Allison Wallach, president of Unscripted for Fox Broadcast Network. We recorded this several months ago. I'm so excited for you guys to finally hear it. We talked about her trajectory throughout the business, starting out at William Morris Agency, like so many iconic figures in our business, moving over to the network side at Lifetime. She worked at BBC. She worked at Jupiter. She was right there at the center of the true crime boom before coming over to Fox Alternative Studios and then getting her position as president of Unscripted at the network. Now, we recorded this months ago, so I didn't have the chance to dig into some of the recent hits they've had, like Stars on Mars, and obviously Special Forces has been a success story for them getting a second season renewal. But we did play a little game at the very end of our session where I asked her to rank and compare all of the classic Fox unscripted shows. This is my sit down with Allison Wallach. I hope you enjoy it. So it's great to finally get some quality time with Allison Wallach. I'm just happy to see you. It's been a long time. I know. I, I don't know if we've ever actually had like a real meaningful conversation. I feel like the one time I was maybe introduced to you, I feel like you were sitting at a table with a bunch of other power executives at BOA uh, beneath, beneath Soho House one evening. And I think it might have been like Corey Abraham and maybe like, yeah, Jen Daly. Jen Daly. Absolutely. <laughs> who was who now? Who is in this group? It's like Sharon Levy. It's, it's now. Hopefully, I don't forget anybody. But it's a big group now, um, and I love them all. It's Sharon Levy. It's Jenny Daly. It's Beth Greenwald. Beth. It's Lauren Geller. It's Lori York. It's Elaine Fontaine Bryant. It's Stephanie Leidecker. It's oh. Stephanie Ziv. It's Sally Ann Salsano. Um, oh God, Betsy Schechter. Um, there's a couple more I know. Now. Corey Henson. Corey Henson is not, although I, I, Corey Henson's fantastic, but she hasn't <laughs> been on one of the girls' trips. Um, oh, these are trips. We're not talking about just dinners. These are like vacation friends. Oh yeah, no. We um for Lauren Gellert, Gellert's 40th birthday, which you know was probably a year ago. No, um, <laughs> it was a while back. Uh, we I was invited to go um to Vegas for her 40th and met all of these women who had worked together in different and had just been friends for so long. Um, and from that point on, every year now, we've done a trip um, with the exception of one year during COVID. But we, yeah, we, we go away together during the summer or, or the fall, but usually in the summer for like a long weekend. And how does Lou love this when you have your <laughs> annual girls trip? Lou, Lou responds, uh, I'm sure he's very supportive of this. He listen. He knows it's the lady boss trip. No one gets in. No one gets in the way of the lady boss trip. <laughs> well, it's it's great to finally get some time with you, and I just wanted to hear all about how you came up in the business. And congratulations, by the way, on on the recent recent new assignment at uh, Fox Network. Um, yeah. But like, were you? Did you come up uh, through the agency ranks? Like, when you got out of college, like, what was the first real gig that got you on your way in the business? It's so, you know, it's so funny because I, I, I didn't come up. I kind of went, I transversed. I, I, you know, I, I kind of went through a bunch of open doors along the way. Um, I came out of school, I went to Northwestern and I wanted to move back to New York and I was a radio, television, film major. And 
There wasn't, you know, at that time, I think everyone wanted to be in film. Film was cool. TV wasn't it, it at least, you know, it, it, I don't think I, that's changed. I think it has changed. I think when you're in features, you have to wait so long to get something done. I yeah. think the immediacy of television is, you know, a little bit more appealing to people like me. But uh, anyhow, so I had a job lined up for a commercial production company in New York through like my stepfather's patient, my stepfather's a doctor. And by the time I got home after school, the commercial production company shut down. So I had no job. And my next door neighbor, her son-in-law was a film producer named Stephen Haft, who um, produced Dead Poets Society. Oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too. And so he let me, so they let me go and kind of read scripts and sit in his um, office on 57th Street. And um, so I would go in and, and wasn't getting paid anything, but I would go and I would read feature scripts. Um, and while I was there, I was sort of looking for a job and someone else heard that there was a casting director, I think down the street or in the same building that Stephen knew who did all of the extras casting for Woody Allen named Todd Thaler. So he was hiring. So I went and I worked there and I was mm. working there for like a few months. That was my first paying job. And it was about, you know, three months or four months after I got out of college and maybe three months. And while I was working there, Stephen Haft had said to me, if you really want to be in the business in New York and you really want to um, get the lay of the land, you should go into a training program, um, mm -hmm. an agency training program. And, you know, William Morris at the time was sort of the, the big one and in New York. And so I applied and um, it took like two months because it was 14 interviews. You had to, you know, meet everyone. And and I got into the trainee program at William Morris. Like so many, like so many of like the legends of our business came through the William Morris mailroom. And like yeah. how, like knowing that time in your life, like when we're in our early twenties, it's not like any of us are real great studies in like the history of the business, but looking Looking back now, like, did you have any idea how influential William Morris was when you walked in there? I really didn't, except the guy who I ended up working for, um, I ended up in TV Lit working for Adam Berkowitz. And Adam, I, know, I know Adam from my time at CA as an assistant. Yeah, and Adam was like an old soul. And Adam's uncle, Matt Lefkowitz, was one of like the founders of William Morris. Like he was one of like number two there or something. And so he would always sort of make it clear to me the, the sort of the history and the importance and, and, and all of that. So so you felt it a tiny bit, you know, when you're sitting on calls with Norman Brokaw and, you know, I hate to say it, like Bill Cosby, and you're asked to, you know, take notes when Bill's calling in the middle of the night from Paris and you're like, wait, I'm on the phone. And at the time, it was a cool thing to be on the phone with Bill Cosby. Um, you know, it, it did sort of hit me that this was cool. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and But how soon into your position there and being on a desk, did you realize you didn't want to be an agent? Oh, it was amazing. So I not only, I actually was on Adam's desk. I think I was on Adam's desk for almost two years. I mean, it was a long time. And his clients would all call me, you know, he was an, he is, and he was an amazing agent. Um, but he, his, his bedside manner, was was uh, not necessarily. He wasn't the warm and fuzzy type. He he yes. made the very best deals, and and so I became. And Allison, so hold on. And speaking of deals, I don't want to gloss over this. Isn't he kind of like? I don't know. People 
say that he might have designed the whole idea of the agency package in in scripted? Wasn't he like very much at the forefront of that? He absolutely was. I mean, yeah. I will tell you, he, you know, I mean, yes, he was. Um, it, it predated me because by the time I came in there, he was already on, on, on that role. But, you know, everyone, he had Larry David before Larry David was, you know, he, well, actually, I think he, he might have made the Seinfeld deal. I think he probably right. did, I, you know. Um, so he was really the one who had the cornered the market on um, the, the TV writers business. And then, yes, the packaging. So but Adam, you know, Adam would say to me, you'll never be an agent. Like he thought I was too nice. I was too whatever his reasons were. I say too nice. He probably thinks, you know, whatever. Um, I, I would never be an agent. But as it turned out, I um, I wanted to move to L.A. I, I realized I was very close to you know, my count counterparts in LA and, and uh, um, Aaron Kaplan was sort of the guy that I would speak to all the time because he was working for Gary Loader, who was the head of the department on the West Coast. And so I would, um, I saw how quickly Aaron got promoted and I saw how quickly things were moving on the West Coast. And even though I didn't really want to move to LA, I figured if I was going to try it, I'd have to do it out here. So I ended up, that's how I actually really connected with Lou because Lou was working on the West Coast and wanted to move to New York and I wanted to move to LA. So our bosses were like, well, maybe we could switch jobs. And um, he ended up not moving. So I ended up moving to LA and working for Lanny Novak. So it was about two and a half years into my time at uh, William Morris when um, I got out to LA and realized what TV lit agents had to do, which was go to tapings every Tuesday night, every Friday night. It was a drag and I didn't, and it felt very much, frankly, like a very male culture. It was, it was a little, especially needed, in the, especially in the comedy world at, at that time. Right. Very much so. So I really wanted to get out. And, um, Adam had a client, John Bowman, who was making a three-year deal at Warner brothers and was, um, the first year of his deal was to executive produce Murphy Brown. Mm. And needed someone, he needed an assistant and he needed someone to come in and, and be a writer's assistant. So I took that opportunity and I left and went to go work with John at Warner wow. Brothers. And writers, I mean, and for those that don't know, I mean, being a writer's assistant, it is literally one of the hardest jobs in the business to get because yeah, there's a room full of writers, but there's only one writer's assistant. So there's like less of those jobs in the business than many others. And for many people, that's how you get your start as a, as a sitcom writer. It was super cool. It was really cool. I have to say, um, I learned a lot. It was so collaborative. Like, you know, it was it was just really, and it was my first time, you know, working on basically a campus, like working on Warner Brothers. And, you know, we, we were working in um, what was James Dean's old apartment. Oh, on and the lot? On the lot. Oh, God, that's was, so cool. It was really cool. And in fact, there was a... Um, they, they did a seance. John's wife, Shannon, had someone come in. They did a seance to sort of see if we could bring back um, James Dean. And there was like a wall that they had put up that that um, they, that they knocked on and realized it was shallow. And they knocked it. This, they came in with a saw and knocked it down and realized that there was a whole little hidden room. I mean, there was a lot of cuckoo-ness that went on during this time. But it was awesome. And, and we only... We only stayed on the show for a year, and then John went on to develop a show called The Show, which was based on his experience of being a white writer from Harvard, creating a show for um, 
for because uh, he had done Martin for Martin Lawrence. Oh, okay, sure. Got it. Oh my God. Well, first off, did James Dean show up? We should not gloss over that. He did not show up, unfortunately. Okay. I, I had to ask. And 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 for the people that don't know, you mentioned Lou earlier, and I mentioned Lou earlier. So this is your husband. You guys met as assistants at William Morris. So this was like we did. We both went to Northwestern, but we oh. sort of knew of we knew of each other. He was a year behind me, but we weren't friends. And so we, it was like a it was a good reason to sort of reconnect. It was like, oh, Lou Wallet from Northwestern, and yeah. I, I also met, I didn't have the college connection, but I also met my wife as assistants at CAA. Oh, okay. So another Hollywood success story, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, successful relationship story. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> so when you, so knowing you had this whole scripted background in the early stages of your career, I saw that you had been a VP at Lifetime early on in your career. Was that through the, the scripted side of things when you got the Lifetime? Yeah. So, um, so this is what I mean by things just, I sort of just took opportunities. And so, so while I was working for John out here, um, I realized I didn't really want to be in production. I felt like I wanted something, I wanted more security than that. I wasn't someone who could like, I couldn't stomach the freelance of it all. Right. And I also really wanted to move back to New York. Mm. And, um, Kara Stein, who was an agent at William Morris and a good friend of mine, who was in New York called me to say that Don Tarnofsky was coming into Lifetime in New York and was looking to hire um, a manager of scripted. And would I, you know, want to meet with her? And so I did. And I ended up moving back to New York to work for Dawn um, as the manager of scripted. And in this era, what what is this era of Lifetime scripted as you walked in there? Is this mostly so movies? Now, this was what, so in my time, we did um, Any Day Now was the first drama we did, and then Strong Medicine. Um, and it was at a time where it became, they cornered the market in female-led dramas, because there really wasn't anything out there. It was pre-Ally McBeal. It had been a long time. Um, you know, it was, um, they had Spencer for Hire or something on their <laughs> earth, you know? <laughs> And, and so it was really when the Lifetime Television for Women got branded. Um, so, and, and we did a couple of comedies, Oh Baby and Maggie, a couple of comedies. But anyhow, so that it was, it was during that era. I mean, you, so you've now lived back and forth between New York and LA multiple times. Yes. So let's just get to it. Give yeah. me the, give me the pluses and minuses of both. What do you what do you what do you love of LA? What do you love most about New York? Where where can one city not compete with the other? I mean, who who has Allison's heart? Really, I guess is what I'm asking. I think New York. Well, New York is my family. You know, yeah. I grew up in New York City, and and my sisters were around the corner, and my mother, and and so so family, and um, and just a true, very very full life outside of work there. Yeah. And, um, and I always felt, I mean, I, I never, I never kept away for too long from LA. I would always make sure to find a reason to be back here at least a few days or a week of every month, my entire career, because when you're here, you take care of business, you know, you're, you get to see a lot of people and, you know, depending on what job it was, um, create more opportunity and then go back to New York have my life and, um, you know, follow up on the stuff that I sort of ignited while I was out here. And that lasted for a very long time. Um, but I also had, you know, at the time I had young kids. And so any time that I was offered opportunities to move out here, it just felt like it wasn't the right time. Um, right, because you raised the kids on the East Coast? 
Yeah, I raised the kids in New York. And now, is it your son is also now at Northwestern? Is that right? Do I have that right? So I have a son and a daughter. My son graduated from Northwestern in June, and he's actually um, an assistant at UTA. Oh, look at this. He's a trainee there and um, works for David Kirsch. Wait, um, I didn't know this. I talked yeah. to Kirsch all the time. I had no idea that your son was on his desk Charlie, right now. say hi to him next time. Oh, my God. Yes, I did not know. I did not know there was a Wallach on Kirsch's desk. There is a Wallach in the house. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And then my daughter is now 20. She's a sophomore at Northwestern. So it was just good timing for us to finally be able to move here guilt-free a little bit. Oh, yeah. So now you can just enjoy the West Coast and, and not have to worry about what goes into raising a kid on the West Coast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I didn't. Forget. Yes, no. As as a parent who struggles with that all the time, it has it yeah. has two kids. Uh, but the UTA connection, you yeah. you go to BBC Worldwide, but then eventually you land and you become an agent at well, at UTA. Was, yeah, I mean that was the funny thing. I you know I was um, at Lifetime and I was being um, offered. Strange, I, I say strangely because, and I so appreciate him offering it to me, but I was being offered the head of comedy job at Warner Brothers, scripted. Wow. Even though I was doing unscripted in New York and um, I, they flew me out here and I was having this interview with Bruce Rosenblum, my final sort of, you know, and on my way to the airport, Greg Lipstone calls me and says, I know you don't want to leave New York. And Paul Telegdi is looking for someone to um, open, to run the New York office of BBC. We mm. just meet with him on your way to the airport. And after it was a 10 minute meeting because I was late to get to him and late to go to the airport. And he convinced me in those 10 minutes to come do the BBC job. Um, and while I was in the BBC job about a year in, he left to go to NBC. I, I was there. I, I was there at the time. I was on Ben's desk when when Paul Paul came in and uh, took over from Craig Plestis. Yeah, exactly. And when that happened, my whole sort of reason for being there really started. It, it left. Um, I mean, describe describe for people that don't know and didn't experience it. Paul Telegdi, the producer. Paul Telegdi, the salesman, he was a force of nature. He, he's talent. I still believe it. He's he's talent. I think he is. Um, he's a brilliant. He's not. He's not. And he's not like a snake oil salesman. He's a no. salesman. Um, and uh, and so I and I really believe. And when you're going, I was so nervous to go on the selling side because I've been a buyer for eleven years at Lifetime. And he said to me, he convinced me. He's like, you're always selling up, which you are, right? I can't. I'm not going to pick something up unless the guy above me or the girl above me thinks. So um, he convinced me and, but I also knew that I had a partner in Paul who was going to help make the process a lot more enjoyable and easier because he was so good at selling. Um, so anyway, so when he left, I definitely was, and I had like another year left on my deal. I, I think I probably was pretty vocal about how unhappy I was to people I trusted. And I got a call from Michael Camacho, who I'd never met before. Mm who said to me, um, I'm hearing that you would make a great agent. And I was so insulted. And I said, no offense, I'm so <laughs> insulted by that. And uh, he did explain, he said, you know, you've got great relationships with buyers, but you also have great relationships with producers. You've kind of been on both sides and we're looking to um, open up the New York office of UTA Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so we're looking to step that up. Would you want to try being an agent? 
And funny enough, because Adam had convinced, told me I would never be an agent and I could never be an agent, I, A, didn't reach out. Well, I also, because Camacho had left CIA unceremoniously, I didn't ask for anyone's opinion. I just sort of was like, you know what? Why not? I could try this and I'll see what happens. And, um, you know, and I think there were friends like Greg Lipstone and Eric Wattenberg who kind of were annoyed that like I didn't talk to them about it first if I was considering doing it, you know. But anyway, so I went to go be an agent. No, but hold on. I think that's a really good lesson, actually, because that is rare. That is rare that someone gets an opportunity and doesn't socialize it because yeah. we kind of live in a business where you kind of like want to like run it through everybody and see what everybody thinks and what the opinion will be and how it'll play, you know behind closed doors, whatnot. And at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters is your own. Well, that's it. And it's, it is virtually impossible with how incestuous our business is for people to truly, and it's no fault of theirs, but to truly give you a, an objective opinion. You know, everyone has some sort of, you know, connection. Right. Interest. If you're going to ask people, the people you ask, you think know the situation, they, then they could be too close to it or too. So yeah, so I didn't. Um, shame on me. No I'm kidding. So, <laughs> so no, actually, I, I, so I did. I, I was very happy when I went to to UTA. Um, By the way, I think of I probably too much. I think about what happened to Camacho all the time. Like I think now, not like what happened to him. I should rephrase that. I think about where he is now, all the yeah. time. Because I would love to have a conversation with that guy one day and just have him tell all the war stories. But I really don't know. I know there are people out there that still talk to him, but I don't I don't personally know like what he's up to these days. And the guy had his hands in everything for such a long time in our, in our business. And then one day he just wasn't playing in the reality field anymore. Yeah, I um, I'll tell you, I have been super fortunate and I say this all the time. I've had the most incredible mentors. Mm. Um, I've had I've had the best. The, the most brilliant bosses, whether it's John Bowman, Adam Berkowitz, John Bowman was a brilliant writer, Paul Telegdi, Dawn Ostroff is, is to this day, she is my number one go-to for if I ever need advice. Mm. Um, and then Camacho was a brilliant agent. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, and I, and I learned a lot from him in the two years that we actually got to work together um what was like the what was like the best rabbit you ever saw him pull out of his hat you know and maybe it was even less than two years might have been a year and a half um he just never flinched i don't i, I don't even know because at the time you know i, I think that the, the lessons i learned for him were probably things now in hindsight pertains specifically to him which is like never put anything in writing or you know um but, but I just, I, I, it was the confidence that he had, um, going into any situation that I was envious of. Mm. Um, and, but, but again, I think there was lessons to be learned about what not to do from him as well. Clearly. Sure. No, of course. So from UTA, you get the opportunity to go to Jupiter and, yes. and you become, pre is that because you represented them? Yes, I represented them. And, um, they were one of the first clients that I got put on the team. I wasn't even, I didn't even sign them um, myself. I, I, I was just on the team, but Steven and I had met when I was at Lifetime. Um, I guess he had come in and pitched once and he remembered that. And so I worked really closely with those guys because, you know, it, it, 
when you represent production companies, I think the best agents feel as though they're the COOs of each of their clients' companies. You know, you kind of have to get, get dirty is, and get in there with them and help them. And um, we just had a really great working relationship and a good partnership. Um, and um, another one to this day, I mean, I, again, I feel so super blessed, but um, so yeah, I was about about four years in and Stephen finally, people kept kicking the tires, wanting him to sell his company. And finally, Sky convinced him and he had asked me to come into the company as his succession plan to be the president before it sold so I could really participate in the earnout. But um, I couldn't get out of UTA at that point. So it was about a year later um, that I was able to finally, when the deal closed, I was able to get in there with him, which was great. I mean, and you want to talk about the story of our business and, you know, emerging genres, the boom of true crime specifically. I mean, Jupiter is like right at the center of it with Homicide Hunter and Joe Kenda and like the Robert Durst specials you guys did and other specials. I mean, Jupiter was like it. I mean, it felt like every time I was competing for a show to get made at ID, it was like, oh, Jupiter's Jupiter's already making it or Jupiter's already done that version of it. Yeah, you know, and this is another lesson, at least uh, that I think I learned and, and I hope other people have learned. Um, it didn't sound like the sexiest job. You know, you're working for a Knoxville-based company and you're doing true crime and it's like low-end cable and snapped, you know, it was on oxygen for so many years. And, um, but it, 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 it was such a good business and with such smart people um, working at the company and Steven is a brilliant businessman. Um, and it was, it was, for me, it was totally, I don't know if it was right place at right time or or what, but um, but you're totally right. You know, I, I was on a panel last week sitting um, with Corey Abraham and just hearing, you know, it's like, it just brought me back to um, my days of living in crime, but it was all, but crime pays. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, volume pays. I, I like literally just had this text chain like conversation with my friends today, uh, sadly, because of the news of Showtime yeah. folding into Paramount Plus and like what that means. And we just saw what's what's happened with HBO Max's reality team and, and potentially Turner Turner's uh, slate and not so much the Turner slate of it all, but with the HBO Max and Showtime uh, reality departments closing down to some extent or being lessened to some extent, it really shows you that the business, our business has always been about volume and we love premium, of course, but what actually drives the commerce and the business, like you talked about, it being great business, has always been the repeatable, ongoing, for, made for a price point, returning series. Like the volume is what actually drives our business. It's you know, it's funny. I I never heard the term high volume, low cost until I got until I worked with Jupiter and realized the importance of it and the importance of having the ability to do it. Yeah. Um, and just recently, the past couple of days, I've had producers visiting from New York who previously had done pretty much mostly, you know, cable um, and some, some streamer stuff, but cable. And um, and they came in and one of them in particular was sort of saying, you know, we hope you know that we can also do broadcast. And I was like, I got to tell you, you're the people that we need to be doing broadcast. <laughs> You know how to make shows differently. Sorry, the lights go out when you don't move. Uh, we, you know, we know how to. You guys know how to approach things in a way because you've had to 
do it at a, at a cost. It's um, so, it is so true, by the way. Yeah. It's yeah. so, it's so, it's so, you're right. Cause people usually, and you know this, cause you've now been on that side and now you're at yeah. the broadcast network, but usually the folks that you deal with at a broadcast network have the backwards way of thinking. They're thinking, how could a smaller company ever figure out how to spend more money? Right. Yes. Yeah. It's but it's much harder for the bigger companies to figure out how to work with less. That's right. Things have have changed very quickly. Uh, uh, I, I know I only have so much time with you because uh, <laughs> you're busy. You're running reality now for Fox Network. So I, I appreciate your time, but I want to play a little game with you before uh, you know we wrap things up. Okay. Sure. So now knowing that you are now running Fox, who is which has been synonymous with some of the biggest breakout hits in the history of the very medium we're talking about, right? With the reality TV business. I'm just going to play a simple game. I play with my kids sometimes at home, which is just either, or I'm going to name two Fox classic reality shows. And you tell me which one Allison Wallach prefers. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Pops or America's most wanted. America's most wanted. Temptation Island or Joe millionaire. Joe millionaire. The simple life. My big, fat, obnoxious fiance. Simple life. Paradise Hotel or The Swan? The Swan. Ooh, good answer. Good answer. Uh, Kitchen Nightmares or So You Think You Can Dance? Kitchen Nightmares. Okay, that's about to get tough. Master Chef or Mass Singer? Mm. (laughs) Well, first, Mass Singer... No question, but I do love MasterChef too. Okay. Uh, American Idol or X Factor? American Idol. Okay. Winner's round. America's Most Wanted or Joe Millionaire? Joe Millionaire. The Simple Life or The Swan? (sighs) The Swan. (laughs) Kitchen Nightmares or Mass Singer? Mass Singer. Oh, man. Okay, here we go. I'll just cut to it. Joe Millionaire or Mass Singer? Mass Singer. But just the fact that you had to think about it for that long. I love Joe Millionaire. I know. It just speaks. But I love Mass Singer. I love, they're my babies. I love them both. They're, They're both great shows. But it just speaks to the power of like what Joe Millionaire meant to the industry when that when that first came out. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a movement. So now that you are like in the big, the big buyer job, you've been obviously at Fox alternative um, group for, for, you know, on the studio side for the last couple of years, I don't want to gloss over that. But now, now that you're in the big buying job, we're like kind of living in like a pseudo zoom pitching era, sometimes in person era. Like, what do you, what are you preferring right now? Like what is, what is working? And, and I mean, working for the producers, not working for you, but what's actually, what's actually proving to be most effective, I guess, for, for getting stuff done when pitching right now. I think pitching, I don't mind the zoom thing. I'm good with the zoom thing for the pitching. Um, I think there has to be an in-person connection somewhere along the way early on. Yeah. So if it's something we're interested in, the follow-up meeting should be in person if it can be. I've been saying that. I've been saying that for a while that pitches can be in person, but the first kind of pseudo kickoff meeting or let's roll up our sleeves now and that's, that should be in person. I agree completely. The the initial doesn't have to be, Uh, the initial pitch doesn't have to be, but let me ask you the real question. Cause I wonder about this all the time. If you're bringing in a great sizzle 
and a, obviously some paper and a deck to send with it. How much does the deck really matter? So the deck matters for here. The deck doesn't matter as much to me. It matters more to the people on my team who actually will be able to say this show can actually be made. The substance. You know, I, yeah, there's substance here, honestly. It, so it does really matter in terms of just the, the information. It doesn't have to be the bells and whistles, but the, the needing that in-depth information, I think, is key. But you said not for you because you're much more thinking of like, it will cut through the clutter. Correct. How can we how can we market it? What's the billboard? That's yes. how it has to start. Because if it doesn't have that, what, yes. what, what matters about the deck, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, can we talk about Farmer Wants a Wife for a second? <laughs> Absolutely. This is, this is just my thing real quick. And again, because we're talking about, we just went through all those classic Fox shows and like what the Fox yeah. brand has meant over the years, right? In terms of loud, explosive, water cooler, buzzy shows. I was actually really loving the fact that the Farmer Wants a Wife ad, it was actually earnest. Like it was legitimately earnest. And I was like, this isn't how I associate Fox reality, but I kind of love that there's just an earnest dating relationship show out there because- it's always turning over tables and women fighting with each other over a guy or vice versa. I don't know. That was just me. Unless there's some big, right. No. Yeah. You know, you just hit the nail on the head. I think we really, that's what st stood out. And I can't take any credit for buying it. It, it was here when I got here. Um, but I can tell you that um, seeing the cuts coming in and, and really, um, I can really appreciate why this stood out to the team here because it, it it's a little bit of why we can sit and watch Yellowstone and I can watch just those scenic moments for a while and sit back and feel like, okay, I can breathe and there's romance and it's beautiful. And I think with this one, um, it is completely authentic, you know, and these cowboys, they're not models. They're not, you know, they're real guys and these women are really looking for love and hopefully it feels, it, it, you know, we're hoping that it does feel um, familiar and comfortable and welcoming and warm when, when people tune in versus, okay, I'm ready for a cat fight and that they embrace it a little bit. Cause I do think we're going into a period of time. It's going to be a little challenging in life. Well, it's um, interesting because basic cable and broadcast TV like invented the big dating format. But then Netflix got a hold of the dating format yes. and they weren't having loud fights and they weren't having like the quote unquote messy storyline angles. And people really responded to that and people started to realize, oh, you can actually make these dating shows and not have to rely on like lowest common denominator storytelling every time because sometimes it is about the romance. Sometimes it really is about the human connections and, and sincerity. And yeah. now here we are and broadcast is like, okay, let's, let's take a shot at it. And I, and I also love, I also kind of cringe that like earnestness, earnest is like a bad word in our business. Yeah. And like, you know what else is earnest? Ted Lasso. Yeah. And, and, and that does pretty well for itself, right? Because sometimes you just want a show to make you feel good. You know what else is earnest? All of HGTV and Food Network. Yeah. And it makes us feel good. I love seeing this. And I know, I know you can't necessarily take credit for it, but just in terms of if this is what is going to be more to come from like the broadcast and big platform space in formats. I, I'm all for it. Listen, I think that we've learned a lot, even with special forces, um, the show that we have oh, on yeah. the air now, you know, it's the, it, it is totally authentic. There is so much heart there. 
Um, there are moments where you just, you know, and, and those episodes haven't even aired yet where you want to cry along with them. And, and, um, it's okay. Like we are not looking for anything mean spirited right now. We're just not, mm. um, you know, I, I don't think anyone wants to put people on that. You know, that's why shows like Mass Singer, they, you know, it, it, it was nice to come over here after working in crime for so long. Cause I was able to, between that name, that tune and all these shows, I was like, Oh, this is fun. It's, we can yeah. have fun, you know? So um, we're looking for more of that. I think. Thank you for giving me your time. Thank oh. you. Thank you for, for doing this from the, Dar the, the Darnell office. So I can actually see <laughs> what that office looks like without a, a zebra print rug or whatever was in there previously. <laughs> it looks, it looks great. Um, and it was great. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for doing this on a, on a Friday. Of course. It was great chatting with you. Thank you again for inviting me. Thanks, Allison. All right. Take care. Bye.